Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. Now, let's hear from Mike. People are forever coming up with schemes to get rich. Matter of fact, it'd be fun to ask, when was the last time you heard of a get-rich-quick scheme? You ever heard of one? You ever been approached by one? Uh, You probably get emails to that extent. Um, They're very common. Get-rich-quick schemes are about as common as trees or a tree with a lot of leaves. They're all over the place. The problem is that not all of those trees, so to speak, are fruit trees, meaning not all of them bear fruit or produce what they promise. So, uh, what do you know about get-rich-quick schemes? Well, interestingly enough, there's a passage in the book of Genesis that talks about a scheme, and if you just read the passage for all the world, it sounds like that one was successful. So what I want us to do is look at this passage and ask what can we learn by this get-rich-quick scheme that is in Genesis chapter 30. So look with me, if you will, at Genesis chapter 30. Look at verse 25, where we're told, And it came to pass, when Rachel had borne Joseph, that Jacob said to Laban, Send me away, that I may go to my own place and to my country. Give me my wives and my children, for whom I have served you, and let me go, for you know my services for which I have done for you. Now let's pause for a second and play a little catch-up. If you'll recall, uh, Jacob fled his homeland, Palestine, and went back to Haran, uh, where his family roots were, because of a conflict he had with his brother Esau. When he got to Haran, he had love at first sight for a gal named Rachel and got deceived by her father and ends up inadvertently being married to Leah, the older sister of Rachel. He had to work seven years for that. So after seven years, he doesn't get the girl he wants. He gets the older sister of the girl he wants. So he makes another deal with Laban to work another seven years so that he can have Rachel, and they agree to that. As we open this passage Those years have been complete. And so, verse 25 says that when Rachel bore Joseph, the last son that she bore him, Jacob said, all right, in essence, let me go home. And what these opening verses are saying is Jacob is telling the father-in-law, I have fulfilled all of my obligations. I have fulfilled the contract that we had, 
And so I would like to now take my wives and my children and my possessions and go back home. Laban responds to that, the father-in-law, in verse 27. He says, please stay, for I have found favor, if I have found favor in your eyes, for I learned by experience that the Lord has blessed me for your sake. Then he said, name me your wages and I will give it. Laban did not want to let Jacob go. I thought what he said was just incredibly interesting. He said, I've learned that the Lord, now we don't know whether Laban knew the Lord or not. He might have. At any rate, he uses the personal name of God here. And he says, what I've learned is the Lord has blessed me for your sake. What a thought. Uh, matter of fact, we should stop and ponder on that for a while. Uh, would the people in your life say that the Lord has blessed them because you are in their life? Would that not be one of the greatest compliments you could receive? If somebody said, you know, it is a blessing from God that that person, you, are in my life. Well, that's what Laban is saying. Now, he probably is referring to material prosperity, but be that as it may, what a testimony. God has blessed me because you are in my life. I remember once, years ago, a man that I greatly admired, an older Christian, uh, saying to me that everybody in your life ought to leave better off because you were in their life. What a challenge. And that's the kind of thing that Laban is saying. I'm better off because you're in my life. So don't leave. Don't go back home. And he says in verse 28, just name your price and I will give it. I want you to stay. So Jacob responds to him in verse 29. And he says to him, you know how I have served you and how your livestock has been with me. For what you have before I came was little, and it has increased to a great amount. The Lord has blessed you since my coming. Uh, this is why I think the blessing might have been material, because he points to the flock and herds and says, that's the way the Lord's blessed you. I have cared for your flocks, and uh, they have increased, and that's the Lord has done that through me. So the Lord has blessed you because of what I've done for you. So now he says, uh, verse, 20, uh, verse 30, and now when shall I provide for my own house? I've worked for you for 17 years. I'm sorry, 14. I think it's 17. I've worked for you for 14 years and you have been blessed. You've been prospered financially, materially, but what have I got to show for it? Nothing. So, verse 31, he said, What shall I give you? Uh, Laban said to him, and Jacob said, You shall not give me anything. If you will do this thing for me, I will again feed and keep your flock. And here's the deal. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from there 
all the speckled and spotted sheep, all the brown ones among the lambs, and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my righteousness will answer for me in time to come. When the subject of my wages comes before you, everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and the brown among the lambs shall can be considered stolen if it is with me. All right. The first part of this passage is really about this deal between Laban and Jacob. And the deal is what I just read, and it sounds a little complicated. So let's see if we can straighten all this out. What you have to keep in mind is that Jacob said, I will remove from your flock all the speckled and spotted sheep, the brown lambs, and the speckled and spotted goats. And as the remainder of the story indicates, which we'll get into in a minute, he is saying all future speckled and spotted lambs and goats will be his wages. All right? Got that? Uh, what is so significant about that? Well, in the future, the odd-colored sheep would demonstrate, he says, that I've done right by you. Now, what is all this business about speckled and spotted sheep and brown lambs and speckled and spotted goats? And that's what's significant in this passage. In the Orient, sheep were normally what color? White. White. Right. Goats were normally black or a brown black, and exceptions were not numerous. Exceptions were rare. So what Jacob is saying here is, um, I'm going to take the speckle and spotted, these odd-colored animals, and I'm going to raise them, and that'll be my wages. That is, when they reproduce, uh, that's my wages. And if there's any white sheep among my flock, then you'll know I stole them, because I'm only going to keep these odd color, off-colored animals. Got it? So what's going on? Why would he do a thing like that? Well, this plan puts the possibility of acquiring wealth totally in the hands of the providence of God. If you will recall, when Jacob was back at Bethel, God promised to care for him. So what he's really doing is saying, tell you what I'm going to do. I'll take these odd colored animals and the Lord is going to multiply them and that's how I'm going to be paid and that's going to be my wages. In other words, this is an act of faith. Jacob is saying, I'm going to trust the Lord to multiply those which do not normally multiply very often. All right? So we got Laban's flock over here, all white, 
And anything that's odd colored, which is going to be hard to do, is going to belong to Jacob, and that's going to be his wages if he sticks around, and that's the deal. Got it? Got it. All right. So, in verses 25 through 34, what we have, uh, actually verse, yeah, verse 34, we haven't looked at yet, but what we have here is the deal between Laban and Jacob. So verse 34 says, And Laban said, Oh, that it were according to your word. In other words, I agree with this, but the little significant thing in that verse is that little word that's translated, Oh, that's what you want to do. There's an eagerness expressed in that little word, Oh, okay, let's do it. I'm going to end up with more animals than you, and you're going to work for pittance. That's a great deal. Let's do it. So that's the deal. Now, you got to remember who we're dealing with. We're dealing with Jacob, who's already deceived his father to get the birthright. We're dealing with Laban, who deceived Jacob, so the deceiver got deceived. And he ended up marrying the older daughter instead of the younger daughter. So we got two deceivers here dealing with each other. This can be nothing but interesting. So what happens next is, as they agreed, they're going to divide the flock. So the first part of the passage is the deal they made. The second part of the passage is, now we're going to implement the deal, and we're going to separate the two types of animals. So let's pick up the story at verse 35. So he stop. Who's the he of verse 35? It's not identified, so you've got to go back to the previous verse. Who's talking? Laban, right? That's important. So, he removed that day the male goats that were speckled and spotted, all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, everyone that had some white in it, and all the brown among the lambs, and gave them into the hand of his sons. What? Back up to verse 32. Let me... Now Jacob's talking. Let me pass through all the flock today, removing all the speckled and spotted and all the brown ones among the lambs uh, and all the speckled and spotted among the goats. So the deal was that Jacob would separate them. But when they get down to implementing the deal and dividing the sheep, Laban does it, not Jacob, which immediately tells us Laban does not trust Jacob. And if that's not bad enough, now the deal was that, that Jacob would care for his flock. That's how he's going to earn his wages, right? So instead of letting him have his, Laban letting Jacob have his flock, he gives his part of the flock to his sons. And the other indication that he doesn't trust him at all is in the next verse, verse 36. And he put three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob fed the rest of Laban's flock. So, Laban says, all right, 
I'll deal with you on my terms. And here's what's going to happen. We're going to take the good white of the flock, those that would normally reproduce in normal colors, and we're going to give them to my sons, and we're going to put them three days' journey down the road so you can't possibly mix these herds. And then I'm going to give you the speckled and spotted ones, They're, and all that they reproduce will be yours. But he clearly is taking steps to guarantee that uh, Jacob does not deceive him in any way, and he simply does not trust Jacob. That's what's going on. All right. <laughs> uh, remember, we're dealing with two deceivers. So it's now Jacob's turn. So the first part of this passage is describing the deal. The second part of the passage is describing the implementation of the deal or the division of the flock. And now we're going to get to something real interesting, and I'm going to call it the deception. The deception of Jacob. It's a little involved, and it's a little surprising. So we need to move through this rather carefully. We pick up the story in verse 37. Now, Jacob took for himself rods of green poplar and almonds and chestnut trees, peeled white strips in them, and exposed the white which was in the rods. So he took branches from these three kinds of trees and stripped the bark so that the white part of the branch was showing. Verse 38, And the rod which he had peeled, that is the branch, he set before the flocks in the gutters in the watering troughs where the flocks came to drink so that they should conceive when they came to drink. So the flocks conceived before the rods and the flocks brought forth speckled and spotted and striped, streaked animals. What? This is not what normally happens. What is going on? All right, let's see if we can sort this out. What you've got to keep in mind is that Jacob only had Laban's sheep at the beginning. He took branches of popular almond and chestnut trees, peeled back the bark so that the white branches appeared, and placed those stripped branches in the watering trough so that when the normal colored sheep saw them and conceived, they would bring forth abnormal colored offspring. Does that strike you as odd? What in the world is going on? Is it possible that stripped branches in drinking water could produce odd-colored sheep? That's the question. And as you can imagine, commentators go absolutely wild trying to explain this. This is where studying the Bible gets to be real interesting to see all the possible gymnastics people do to come up with explain this. Let me give you some of what they say. One said 
This is popular superstition. That's all it is. There was a common belief that a vivid sight during conception or pregnancy would leave its mark on the embryo. That belief is not based on facts. All the markings of offspring, such as uh, Jacob thought he was accomplishing in Laban's flock, is completely impossible. That's the opinion of one commentator. And he goes on to explain that the only connection between the mother and the fetus is the ambibical cord, and that there are no nerves in it, and therefore, whatever the mother experiences would not affect the fetus at all. So, thus, it is absolutely impossible for this to have worked. Well, that's the opinion of one commentator. The next one says, this was founded upon a fact frequently noticed, particularly in the case of sheep, that whatever fixes their attention in copulation is marked upon the young. The vice, this device, he says, is well known among shepherds. Uh, as a matter of fact, some have argued that chemicals in the wood of those trees may be capable of affecting the animals. Matter of fact, one commentator says, new generic uh, evidence suggests that this was a, this is a scientific base. The water treated in this way may have served as an aphrodisiac and fertility promoter, a technique used in both ancient and modern times. Or there's another option. Jacob could have used selective breeding, which would eventually develop a flock predominantly of spotted and speckled animals. Perhaps the peeled rods were just a trick to hide his breeding secret from others. Whatever the explanation, and I'm not sure I know the right explanation, the point is this. This was an act of deception. It was designed to mislead Laban. One commentator said, when, jo when Jacob originally made his bargain, he certainly meant that the varied colored sheep and goats would be his, but only those would be born under perfectly normal circumstances. So he's trying to manipulate the situation and gain an advantage over Laban. So he comes up with this really interesting uh, scheme. I'm going to call it the scheme to get rich quick. It's the ancient version of a get-rich-quick scheme. We're going we're gonna to peel branches and put them in the watering trough, and that's going to produce speckled and spotted animals, which we've agreed I get to keep. And if that happens, I'm going to be a very rich man. Now, I suspect most people are going to come to this passage and say, that is pure fantasy. It may be. Jacob may have known that. We'll get to that in a minute. The point is, 
This is his scheme, it seems, to get rich. So, what happened? That was the scheme. What was the outcome? Look at verse 40. Then Jacob separated the lambs and made the flock face toward the street and all the brown of the flock of Laban. But he put his own flock by themselves and put them with Lab- and did not put them with Laban's flock. And it came to pass, whenever the stronger livestock conceived, that Jacob placed the rods before the eyes of the livestock in the gutters that they might conceive among the rods. But when the flocks were feeble, he did not put them in. So the feebler were Laban's and the stronger were Jacob's. So uh, he again is manipulating or trying to manipulate the situation so that he comes out a wealthy man because of the reproduction of the animals. He deliberately took the stronger ones and left the feeble ones for Laban. And the conclusion is in verse 43. Thus the man, meaning Jacob, became exceedingly prosperous and had large flocks, female and male servants, and camels and donkeys. It worked. His get-quick-rich scheme worked. He ends up exceedingly wealthy. Now, how do you explain that? Well, this passage doesn't bother to explain it. It just tells us that's what happened. But if you keep reading, you will discover what really happened. Would you like to know the rest of the story? Read chapter 31. Now, what happens next is he has to explain to his wives that they're going to leave. And in the process of explaining that, which we will look at next time, he says this to Rachel and Leah. Verse 9. So God has taken away the livestock of your father and has given them to me. Was it the scheme that worked? Did Jacob know what happened? Did he think it was this uh, stripped branches that made them reproduce in odd colors? No, not at all. For whatever reason he did it, probably to throw Laban off, uh, thinking uh, nothing about what was happening. But when it came down to Jacob himself explaining what happened, he said, God did it. God blessed me. God made me wealthy. So let me put all this together, and let me make some observations. The story is rather simple, though surprising. Jacob and Laban made an agreement that each took advantage of. They both were deceivers, and they both tried to scheme the other one. But God overruled all of that to make Jacob a very wealthy man. So what are we to conclude from this passage? What in this passage can we learn? Let me make 
several observations. Number one, Jacob worked for his wealth. Regardless of what he did, he still had to care for all those animals. And then he had apparently a large contingent of servants, so he worked. Uh, as the flocks grew, he had to manage the servants who cared for them. In any case, I think you could draw from this passage at least an element of his wealth was his work. And normally, the way to wealth is work. And that's involved in this passage, though it's not highlighted, but it's there. It's implied. It had to be if he was going to accomplish all that he did. I would say, secondly, that his scheme did not work. And I base that on the fact that in the next chapter, he says it was the Lord that did this and not his uh, trickery. So in the final analysis, uh, this get-rich-quick scheme is not what worked, which is usually the case in get-rich-quick schemes anyway. It wasn't the scheme. It was the Lord. So that brings me to the last point I want to make. Namely, the Lord worked. The Lord did this. The Lord made Jacob wealthy. And, and this is the important part for us, Jacob acknowledged that. When the story was over, and he had to tell it to his wives, he admitted that it was the Lord and not his cleverness. One commentator says, God blessed Jacob in spite of his actions, not because of them. Many carnal Christians prosper materially for the same reason. Material prosperity is not necessarily a reward for godliness. Jacob made his own fortune, but the text says that God made Abraham rich. God allowed Jacob to become wealthy through his own toil and deception. God probably would have done more for Jacob than he had done for himself if Jacob had placed himself under God's authority. That is what God usually does. The reason for this section is that people who experience God's material blessing need to acknowledge that it comes from Him rather than their own abilities, end of quote. That last line is what I'm after. I think it really puts the finger on the pulse of this passage. Let me repeat. The lesson of this section is that people who experience God's material blessing need to acknowledge that it comes from Him rather than their own abilities. End of quote. That's not to deny that you work. It's to, deny, it's to acknowledge that God is the one who blesses and prospers His children. Another commentary said something very similar. He says, those who experience material prosperity must acknowledge 
that it is a blessing from the Lord, not the product of their own limited ability. The lesson is not so much a rebuke for the use of superstitious practices as it is a call for acknowledging the true source of success. If God promises to bless his people, nothing can hinder him. And if God determines not to bless, nothing alters his decision. So here's what I want you to put in your pocket or purse and walk away with tonight. Has God blessed you? Have you worked hard? Has God blessed you? And both of those things are true. And what this passage is teaching us as it bleeds into the next chapter is that we need to acknowledge the blessing of God. So when you leave here and get in your car, where did that come from? Solely because you worked? Or was that a blessing from God? And when you get home tonight and enter your dwelling, is that a result of your hard work? I'm sure it is. That's involved. But what this passage is teaching us is that you acknowledge that it's the Lord is the source of blessing. The car, the house, the bed, breakfast in the morning, your cell phone, if you could call that a blessing. <laughs> that we just need to acknowledge the Lord. Lord, thank you. I think I've mentioned this before, but I get in the car and it starts and I thank the Lord. <laughs> because I've gotten in the car on times when it didn't start. So you just acknowledge the Lord. You just thank the Lord. Not to deny that he tells us to work. He says, if you don't work, you don't eat. But where did we get the strength to do that? And where did we get the brains and the brawn to do that? If not, from the Lord. So we need to acknowledge the Lord. During World War I, a businessman visited a factory where munitions were being made. As he approached the gate, he saw a huge sign which read in all capital letters, I-A-D-O-M. What does that mean? It puzzled him, but he soon forgot about it and went about his business. He noticed, however, the same sign was everywhere. It was posted on the walls. It appeared on the doors. It was even displayed at the director's office. As he was being escorted to the factory gate by the director's secretary, he discovered the meaning of the sign. It was an acrostic. I-A-D-O stands for it all depends on me. I would like to suggest that we should construct a sign. I-A-D-O-L. It all depends on the Lord. 
Father, thank you for blessing us with your grace, with your Son, with your Word, as well as our material possessions, the relationships you've given us. Lord, the list is endless. And we confess that we too often take these blessings for granted and assume that it's solely because we work hard or we were clever or we came up with some scheme. So, Father, teach us as we walk through our day to acknowledge you, to thank you, to praise you for all that you've given to us. In Jesus' name, amen.